Welcome to another episode of Cross-Examination. I'm your host, Mark Curran, and today our guest is Tim McCarthy, who's a longtime Secret Service, longtime Chief of Police Orland Park, one of the great uh, heroes in law enforcement and somebody that we can all have a lot of confidence in. Tim, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Good to be with you. Growing up, you grew up in the Auburn-Gresham neighborhood in, in uh, Chicago. Right. Well, a little bit farther, went to school in Auburn, Gresham at Leo High School, uh, but grew up in the Ashburn neighborhood, another mile or so uh, west of Auburn, Gresham along 79th Street. And so that neighborhood's changed a lot, hasn't it? Got a little yeah. rough. Yeah, it's uh, crime has certainly increased there, uh, sadly. Um, you know, and uh, uh, as you know, the Chicago Police Department is is uh, under a lot of stress these days from the standpoint of manpower, woman power, uh, uh, and personnel in general. So they're, they're struggling a bit. They got some great people, but you can only do so much with so many people. So Tim, you went to St. Leo, as you mentioned, and uh, I went to Leo Academy. We would play Leo, and uh, Leo was a smaller school by then and, yeah. and everything else, but it's still around. Actually, my kids played them in football this year or last year at and they go to Carmel Mundelein. You went to the University of Illinois and you walked on for football. How did that happen? Well, um, when I was at Leo High School, I wrestled. And believe it or not, my freshman year at uh, Leo, I wrestled 103 pounds. Uh, uh, I grew quite a bit after that. And of course, played grammar school football and they encouraged me to come out for football. But it wasn't until about my senior year when I started all of a sudden stretching out and uh, uh, gaining weight. So I went down to Illinois and by that time, I was about 180 some pounds, believe it or not. My, my mother would comment that it was like every week she'd have to get a new pair of pants, new shirts and so forth. So I walked on at Illinois. Uh, at that time, uh, you couldn't play varsity football uh, as a freshman. Uh, was on the freshman team. And then after that, as a walk-on, you get invited back. You know, if, if they see that you know might be some value to the team and I was invited back. Uh, became a part-time starter my sophomore year and got a scholarship that year and started my entire junior year, got banged up a little bit my senior year. So great experience. And uh, of course, I'm uh, a big follower of Illinois football season ticket holder, be going down in two weeks for the spring game. And uh, just a couple uh, last year, Coach Bielema created the Tim McCarthy Scholarship for walk-ons. And they awarded one uh, last year, and they're wow. going to award another one at uh, the spring game this year. So uh, it was a great experience for me as a walk-on and, you know, in uh, playing for uh, four years. Uh, but, it, you know, it's a 1,000% it's a commitment <laughs> uh, in, in sports and college now. Absolutely. And so you played football at Illinois. How did that prepare you for life? Because, you know, a lot of mothers out there nowadays are not wanting their young boys to play football and everything else. And uh, it just seems like it, 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 there's great lessons to be learned. Well, I, th I think it is. And uh, I know there's been some controversy along the way of injuries in football. And actually, I talked to Coach Bielema about it. I coached youth football for about 10 years at St. Alexander's, our parish. Uh, and there, there was, uh, it, when the coaches are fairly well trained and teach kids the proper fundamentals, then those things are minimized. And yes, I think there has clearly been a reduction in youth football, but Coach Bielema tells me that uh, he thinks uh, it's coming back again. And remember, there's injuries in all sports. Hockey, of course, is a contact sport. Right. 
soccer is a heck of a contact sport. Yeah, soccer uh, has more concussions than football. I hear that. So yeah. I think uh, it's coming back and good coaching and good equipment, good technique, uh, prevent most of those things. But it's a contact sport. Uh, two of my grandsons are going to be playing tackle football this year, uh, I'm told by their mothers. So we'll see how that goes. But, uh, um, uh, you know, you need proper coaching, proper technique and proper equipment it minimizes that in all the sports. We are on WSFI Catholic Radio 88.5 FM, 7.50 AM. Our guest is Tim McCarthy, the longtime police chief of Orland Park. And he's uh, also somebody that you may recognize from being shot when he took a bullet from Ronald Reagan. Tim was uh, also a football player at the University of Illinois and, and just a real Catholic gentleman. So we're getting his uh, take on what's going on in the world and, and what have you. Tim, so what was the magnet to go into law enforcement? Well, Mark, my father was a sergeant in the Chicago Police Department, so I had that uh, exposure to it. So my major was finance at the University of Illinois. Actually, I started in engineering, uh, but moved on to finance. Uh, then in my senior year, he started doing interviews with different companies. Uh, at the same time, I took the test for the Secret Service. It planned on taking it for the FBI and even the Chicago Police Department. So I took the test for the Secret Service, and lo and behold, just about the time I graduated, uh, actually a couple of months after uh, I left the University of Illinois, they offered me a job. And like any, and I was, you know, I had been exposed to Secret Service a little bit when through my father's experiences and the FBI, and, and certainly growing up on the south side of Chicago, every other household is, is a policeman or or a fireman. So, but like any college senior, you're looking for a job, and the Secret Service offered me one. There's a few things they didn't tell me about that job, but uh, uh, in yeah. any case, it was uh, uh, almost 20, 22 years, uh, uh, retired 22 years after being in the Secret Service, and uh, it was a, a fascinating career. I saw things and went things and, and even heard things that few people ever experience, uh, but at a cost, too. You know, I, I spent the, well, a lot of my career as a prosecutor and then a sheriff 25 yeah. years combined between the two. And, you know, especially when I was young, you always saw it as like the, the good side and the bad side. There's a battle of good and evil and the police and the, and the prosecutors are on the good side. We wear the white hats and the, the defense attorneys and the, the criminal defendants are on, on the bad side and they wear the black hats. So did you see it kind of like that as kind of like a spiritual battle law enforcement at that time? Yeah. And my view was. Uh, both in the Secret Service, we did a lot of criminal investigations. And out of my 22-year career, uh, 13 of it was, you know, uh, doing criminal investigations, counterfeiting, uh, all sorts of white-collar crime in the eight or nine years on, on protection. Uh, but I saw it, especially in the Secret Service, but especially as chief of police, uh, uh, every crime that occurred uh, in Orland Park. And, of course, I chaired the South Suburban Major Crimes Task Force for about 15 years when we did the homicides in the South and Southwest suburbs. Uh, you know, it, it felt personal almost because there's a victim. Uh, most, of the, most of the time, you know, they weren't murders, but, you know, uh, you know victims are still victims and, and uh, they're often overlooked in the process. Um, and I felt great when we would make the arrest, prosecute the offender, in many cases, put the offender in prison, both while I was in the Secret Service uh, and as chief of police. So I took it kind of personal, maybe too personal when things happened. Uh, um, but uh, I'm for the good guys. 
and I'm, as a chief of police, I'm there for the victims, but on the same token to do the job constitutionally. And uh, we got the, the Oral Park Police Department through it, uh, we received an award for our constitutional policing by the Illinois Bar Association many, quite a few years ago. So I think we're doing it the right way and results counted and our crime rate was very low in Orland Park. And in most cases, our investigators who are outstanding along with our patrol officers cleared most of the serious cases that yeah, we came Tim, across. You ran a really a top shelf department in Orland all those years and you know, you were just such a credit. Let me ask you, so as you were, you're, you're going into this career in law enforcement, beginning with the, the Secret Service, how did like your whole Catholic faith play into that, you know, decision and, and what have you? And let me say one other thing, just for the listeners, just the smallness of the world. So my mother that raised me um, was a McCarthy. She lived in 9400 South Pleasant growing up. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, we're, we had law enforcement everywhere. And I, I think the Irish, you know, just very much so. Uh, those were the jobs we could get initially. And, you know, the, the, ultimately, the Irish, the faith was was the centerpiece of their lives. And, and being on that, that side fit nicely, I guess. Yeah. Well, I would say, Mark, that uh, the Catholic faith, and I hope most religions, give you the moral compass that you need to be in law enforcement. Uh, there are temptations along the way, certainly. Uh, but the moral compass is not just for the victim, but to, you know that the offender uh, is treated constitutionally. Um, so I think it gives you maybe a better perspective. Now, you know, we stumble along, we're human, so we make mistakes. And I'm sure I made some mistakes along the way, and people could probably tell you a lot of them. But uh, I think it provide, provided me in particular with the right perspective. Yes, we want to catch every bad guy, no doubt about it. Uh, but sometimes, you just can't do it. Even though you know who the bad guy is, you got to do it the right way. And I think that uh, the, the Catholic faith that I hope most religions give you that proper moral compass to, to do the job, but to do it the right way. And we're moving ahead in your career, okay? So you're in Secret Service. You get assigned to presidential detail where you're essentially protecting the president. And um, you started, what year did you start with the Secret Service? Uh, 1972. 72. So I want to move all the way ahead to March 30th, 1981, which is essentially almost 32 years, you know, to the date we're talking now, yeah. just after Easter. And um, tell us about that day. Uh, that for those that are waiting, there's, there's just a very interesting story. Yeah. Well, uh, I was in the Chicago field office doing criminal investigations for seven years and then was transferred to the Presidential Protective Division, and it was with President Carter to start with. Uh, he lost the election, and the presidential detail stays only with the president. So we transferred our people over to President Reagan, basically in thirds. So were you presidential detail for Jimmy Carter also? Yes. and How, how was Bush. Jimmy Carter? If I'm, you don't... Well, he, uh, based upon success, he didn't get reelected for what that yeah. means, but uh, yeah. he's certainly was a very, he was a religious person, no doubt about yeah, it. You know, he, yeah. he practiced his faith. Maybe the politics didn't go in his direction. And, you know, right. there was a number of things that happened, hostage negotiations. Yeah. But I, I think- He was right he, on a lot of issues, but not right on abortion. You know, from yeah. It, it, you know. It, so I don't know that he had the strongest staff in the world. You know, I yeah. think the staff, um, presidents succeed based upon their staff as much as anything else. Uh, but certainly he was a hard worker. He was a man to be at the Oval Office at 6 a.m. and not leave till 10 p.m. 
So yeah. he put the hours in. Uh, maybe he didn't have the greatest staff. Maybe he did. Right. Um, but things didn't work out for him, and he lost the election. Yeah. As a high-ranking naval officer, you would have thought that he'd have better uh, executive skills than he did. Yeah, he was a nuclear engineer. Yeah. So, so we're moving ahead to Reagan. He's the president. March uh, 30th. 1981 tell us what happens tim mccarthy wakes up in the morning and is is uh where'd you live in virginia or maryland i live in virginia yeah okay. wake so up and we had ahead. to be at the white house uh, at 6 30. you know we worked started the shift started at seven but you had to be there for briefings and so forth and since we knew we were going to the washington hilton hotel uh the briefings you know if the president's just staying at the white house it's just a matter of managing his schedule at the white house a very secure environment uh, on that occasion, he was going to the Washington Hilton Hotel, where the presidents went very regularly. Doesn't mean the the advance work was done any differently. It, it's about a week's worth of work to get it set up based upon where the president is going to go and what's he going to do. And we we're briefed on all the movements that we'd be making, the motorcade routes, the primary, secondary, the hospital, uh, safe rooms, and all of the where we would be uh, throughout the entire movement at the Washington Hilton Hotel. So we were briefed up uh, as usual. There was no uh, threats, uh, no unusual threats uh, that we were told about. We went to the Hilton Hotel. It was raining out. Had you ever heard of John uh, Hinckley prior to that, John David Hinckley? Never, never. He was not on anybody's radar. Yeah, he had been arrested at an airport with a weapon, as I recall now. Uh, but yeah. there's a lot of people arrested at airports right. with guns. <laughs> uh, right. And that didn't rise to Back those in those days, days, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and there was no indication that he had any uh, uh, interest in the president or anyone else at the time, right. and nor would that be part of an interview necessarily of someone uh, at the airport with a gun. But anyway, uh, we went to the Washington Hilton Hotel. Uh, uh, interesting story. On that particular day, my rank would, would have been the equivalent of, of a sergeant. as a grade 13 in the government, but the equivalent of a sergeant. The most and important the most important rank in a police department, right? It, it certainly is. It's where the rubber yeah. meets the road. Uh, right. And uh, so we had a couple of uh, extra people that day, which, you know, to travel with the president, there's only a certain number. I mean, all the agents are there ahead of time, along with local police and other federal agencies securing a location. But traveling with the president, you know, in the, in the inner perimeter is only a certain number. Well, on that particular day, it was raining out. Um, I had a new suit on and, Back in that day, I didn't have too yeah. many new suits. Well, you look good. You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was a light suit. suit. The follow-up yeah. car that we rode at the time basically leaked, so you're getting wet. So yeah. uh, in any event, there was another agent there. We were both you know, the, the equivalent rank of a sergeant, and the agent in charge said, it doesn't matter. You're both briefed. You're both flip a coin. So we flipped a coin, and I lost the flip. The other agent stayed back at the White House handling operations there. And, I went on to the Washington Hilton Hotel, and the rest is history. But uh, history was is that uh, union meeting, right? Wasn't it that he was attending a, a union workers uh, group? Oh yeah, it was the Building Trades, and uh, if I've read his, he kept a pretty good uh, autobiography, yeah. and he thought it didn't go over well. And coincidentally, I worked as a laborer, uh, you know, uh, during my college time, a couple of summers. So I knew a number of the people that were going to be there, and I was going to try to take them on a White House tour in the afternoon. And yeah. I talked to them before, and they were very excited about, about seeing the president. Was it AFL-CIO was there, too, I think? I think so, yeah. yeah. It was it was a big group. It was at least uh, 
The Washington Hilton Hotel is kind of unique. The ballroom is downstairs, but it's big. Probably. Here's what happens on that day that I want to just add a little details to it all. So, Tim, the story that I read, you weren't actually assigned to that detail. It was kind of they needed an extra body. And you, you was there a coin toss? Yeah. But no, no. Uh, we, we, the, the schedule is a schedule. Yeah. And we were all assigned. Uh, however, leaving the White House, we only leave with a certain number. Yeah. And so we had one extra person. So everything was the way it was supposed to be. Uh, the one person was going to be staying back. It just happened to turn out to be, well, we've got two sergeants. We only need one sergeant. We got a lieutenant. We got a, uh, a commander, the agent in charge and so forth. So it was a flip of the coin to determine. And it was just two of you. It was just a funny thing. You know, he said, yeah. let's flip a coin. And right. we actually did it. Right. At what point in the morning you, you hear shots? Tell, take us through what, you know, what happened. Yeah. Well, we, uh, as I said, the ballroom at the Washington Hilton is below ground. So the president goes up and down in the elevator. Of course, there's the agent in charge is with him at all times. The rest of us run up the stairs. Uh, we come out the door. Uh, I think that was P Street, the P Street entrance. We're in our formation around the president. And in the briefings, the president was extremely busy. He's only been in office a couple of months, had to get back to the White House quickly. So there was no indication he'd be working rope lines as they often do. So we weren't expecting him to work, but you never know. So you have to have your head on a swivel. Uh, uh, I was in the number one position in the formation around the president, which was to the front left. Part of my duties was to ensure that the armored car limo was open as we approached it. The advance agent had it open as he was supposed to do. Uh, I looked back at the president. He was waving. I was anticipating he was going to go to the rope line. He kept coming towards the car. And just at that instant, uh, John Hinckley uh, pulled, pushed himself forward in the crowd and fired six rounds in about 1.4, 1.5 seconds and struck four people. Uh, Jim Brady was shot in the forehead, you know, almost between the eyes. Uh, the president was shot under his left armpit. Uh, I was shot in the right chest and Tom Delahanty was shot in the neck. And one round went into the armored uh, window of the car as the president was being pushed in. And the last round went across the street, uh, went through a window, hit a window over there as uh, uh, a gentleman was jumping on the back of uh, John Hinckley. And what type of gun would, did Hinckley have? It was 22. Yeah, so 22. small, small small caliber that bounces around is it, i'm looking at that whole thing and what you did is you you put yourself in front of uh president reagan at that moment in time when the shots were being fired and that, that's why you were essentially hit is that you were blocking his body yeah the training um that we go through and is simulated rec uh, regularly called attacks on the principal aops attacks on the principal attack on the president so we simulate those and there's a couple of theories that that you try to apply. One is the arm's reach theory. That is, if the weapon or the threat is within arm's reach, you go for it and attempt to take it away, neutralize it. And there's several cases where that happened. Uh, an agent by the Larry Boondorf took the gun away from Squeaky Fromm when she tried to shoot President Ford. He was within arm's reach. Uh, you don't you, want to were go you around it during that Ford. Uh, obviously, you were with Secret Service in, at that time, but were you, were you present on that day? At no, no, I was uh, assigned yeah. in the Chicago field office at that time. Yeah. And then the second one is uh, cover and evacuate. And in this case, uh, uh, the offender wasn't within arm's reach. 
So my job was to cover the president while he was evacuated by the agent in charge, the shift leader and others. You know, people are trained to, and you, we've seen this in recent school shootings. Nobody's trained to stand on the outside anymore. We're, you know, go all the way back to Columbine 25 years ago. And then uh, the, we were, the book was rewritten that you, you march, you run right through the door. Rapid and, deployment now, yeah. Yeah, but despite that training, people don't do it, you know, every time. And, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a little, uh, I hate to use the word cowardice, but a little bit of fear and what have you. Now, train, you can train all you want, but... Did you ever contemplate the fact that when you're putting your body in front of the presidents like you did on that day, you know, that may be your last breath. Did you contemplate that prior to March 30th, 1981? Well, I thought about it, Mark, but, uh, you know, uh, as you know, as sheriff, our policemen go down dark alleys uh, chasing people. Our military go up and charge a hill uh, right. in the face of gunfire. And you never know if you're going to do it when it happens. And frankly, I didn't know if I would do it when it happened. I don't know if it happened again tomorrow, if I would do it. Yeah. Uh, I told our mayors in Orland Park that I served that uh, don't count on that happening. Uh, right. But right. it was really as a result of training. And that's what uh, our officers do, our military does, even our firemen and all first responders. They do it based upon training. And, you know, we're human. We don't get it right every time. Uh, but I'm thankful and, and thank God, quite frankly, that right. I did it right on that day. And I'm here to talk about it. I'm confident you do it again. You're, you're, you're so much humility, Tim McCarthy. Yes. So did you know Reagan before that? He'd only been president for two months. Uh, not really. You know, I was just a, uh, a, a line officer, you know, the yeah. agent in charge and the assistant special agent in charge certainly had a relationship with him. Uh, you know, uh, every two weeks we changed shifts. So I was on midnights for two, two, uh, we changed every two weeks. So you didn't see much of the president first lady in those two, uh, two weeks. So no, he didn't know me from, there's a lot of people on the presidential detail, but, uh, I don't think he knew had any clue who I was. Reagan's taken to the hospital, George Washington hospital. Did you go to the same hospital, George Washington? Yeah. Jim Brady, uh, myself and the president went to George Washington Tom Delahanty went to Washington Metro. And, uh, you know, what are, what are your thoughts? Did you know you were going to pull through? Did Well, uh, my thoughts were who's going to get the best doctors? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when Reagan's, I, the famous Reagan line was that, uh, um, you, I hope you're all Republicans. Republicans, yeah. Man, and they said, we're all, we're all pro-Republicans today. Or we're all, <laughs> yeah, know. great response. Uh, Mark, I didn't know. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I knew what had happened to me by the time I got to the hospital and it was starting to get fairly painful and um, they didn't know either. But, you know, I went in for x-rays right away and then, frankly, uh, they uh, put me out and I don't remember anything for, I guess it was a day or two later when I came out of uh, recovery and, and finally woke up and uh, <laughs> I knew it, was, it appeared it was going to work out okay. Yeah, a hundred percent. So were you married then back in 80, uh, 81? Yeah. Married with two children. Yes. Two children. Yes. Right. So yeah. what year did you get married by the way? Uh, got, got married March 17th, 1973. We just finished our 50th anniversary, uh, about two weeks ago. You had a St. Patrick's day wedding. What a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So where, where was it? At what parish? St. Dennis parish. And sure. we we're both yeah. from the same parish. So it worked out yeah, great. Yeah. That's wonderful. So what, what was the mindset of your wife and, and others at, at that point in time? You, they saw it, you know, uh, probably live. 
Well, she saw it moments after it happened when yeah. one of my uh, uh, colleagues who wasn't working that day, not you know, you do have days off and so forth, uh, called her. Um, she, the, the call started rolling in immediately after it happened to our house. But that was before you had call waiting and voicemail and all that type of thing. Yeah. And she saw it on TV and she naturally knew exactly what happened, but of course didn't know the outcome. I mean, the focus was naturally on the president. Uh, one yeah. of my former partners who lived only a block away with his wife came and picked her up. So, and then he, he kind of kept her uh, incommunicado on the way down there, even though he had his secret service radio and so forth and drove her uh, down to the hospital. His name was Dick Griffin. Uh, who I'm forever grateful for, for he and his wife, uh, got her to the hospital. And I think by that time I was in surgery. In fact, I'm certain I was in surgery. And, um, you know, she met uh, Mrs. Reagan and I think Mrs. Brady in the chapel. Yeah. When you're thinking that there's a possibility you're not going to pull through, um, what, what weighs on you? Is, it, is the fact that you have young kids and you have a wife that, that want, needs you and everything else? Yeah, it's, um, you know, uh, moving to Washington, D.C. was very expensive. We yeah. had, we were living paycheck to paycheck, no two ways yeah. about it. You know, it was very expensive. Uh, their homes were expensive. Uh, and though we got a significant amount of overtime, it, you know, it, after you, we sold a house for like 60000 had to buy a house for 100000 at that time. Yeah. Things were very, very, very tight uh, at that time. And it crosses your mind, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, here were they going to make it without me in my yeah yeah Yeah, so that's tough my wife wasn't working at the time you know she was raising the two kids and we had a third after that so you know it would have been uh, you know she was the real trooper during this thing for sure uh the the unheralded unheralded uh, heroes of these things are the spouses uh frankly that go through the the emotional trauma and so forth i mean you you all defeated the odds the chances of a uh, couple staying married for 50 years when, you know, the, the male was dedicated to law enforcement for 50 years are very small. I mean, the, the, the odds are that the marriage is not going to survive. Well, I was in law enforcement for just about 50 years between Secret Service and uh, yeah. Chief of Police in Orland. And then I did, a, you know, interim chief at a couple of at uh, Mokina. But, right. uh, you know, she grew up in the city. You know, her father was a train engineer, but grew up in, in, you know, can't help but grow up in a first responder environment, let me put it that way. So, uh, you know, she knew, I guess, what she was getting into to an extent, but you never think it's going to happen to you. Tell us how your faith played a role in helping you get through um, what had just happened, getting shot by uh, John David Hinckley Jr. Yeah, well, it, it, um, it, uh, I think going in that your faith makes you a little bit maybe more resilient or uh i think it also makes you um maybe prepared for something like this a little bit that uh, bad things do happen even to good people supposedly um but i think it's resiliency i think it's you know believing that uh, uh even if the worst thing happened to me that good things would happen to my family uh, yeah. That's afterwards. Beautiful. That's so. Beautiful. Yeah. You're familiar I, with the story of St. Thomas More, right? I mean, he went, uh, St. Thomas More went, was beheaded. And uh, at that point in time, none of his family really were strong in the faith at all. And as a result of that, you know, 
they all became fervent uh, sure. members of the Catholic Church. And I guess, you know, uh, God had some more plans for me because if that bullet had gone one inch to the left, uh, it was in the K-5 yeah. area, as you know, with that Right, means. right, right. So you developed as a result of that a relationship with President Ronald Reagan. And I, just by way of background for the listeners also out there, a couple things. Peggy Noonan wrote a couple books about President Reagan. In his second book, When Character Mattered, she talks about the fact that Reagan never became a Catholic. His mom was a Protestant uh, and his dad was a Catholic, but his dad was kind of a meandering alcoholic that uh, never really got it yeah. together. And his mom kind of raised him. But uh, in her book, she talks about how basically Reagan surrounded himself with almost all Catholics. And he insisted on Ave Maria being played at his funeral. And he just seemed to have a great love for the Catholic Church, even though he never became a Catholic. Could you just you know tell us a little bit about your relationship with Ronald Reagan and, and uh, what that was like? Well, it became certainly it was a lot different uh, uh, after this took place. Uh, however, he still had to maintain a professional relationship too. But I was uh, he when we had visited him before leaving the hospital. I got out of the hospital before him. He said, "No, oh, Tim, we'll be getting together for dinner, things like that." I didn't really think that was going to happen. But lo and behold, it was St. Patrick's Day about a year later, and uh, I, yeah, and I sitting at a, a table. Um, with the president uh, and Tip O'Neill, and believe it or not, they could get along, even though they yes. had some monumental fights. But yes. it, it, it was different then. They could have their monumental fights, but they would keep it professional rather than personal, and they could get along together. So I'm sitting at a table with uh, President Reagan, Tip O'Neill, Hollywood stars, I think it was Frank Sinatra, John Wayne, and people like that. My wife is at a table with Mrs. Reagan, Maureen O'Hara, and others. And uh, and they and they were all drinking Guinness or I can't remember Guinness or Harp or something. Yeah. And the president didn't, didn't drink much anyway, but you know it's the occasion. Yeah. And uh, they said, "Tim, would you like to drink?" And I go, "I've got all these other agents standing around the room, and the agent in charge. I think not. I think yeah. maybe just a glass of water or tea would be just fine." Right. So right. it did change. Uh, uh, Mrs. Reagan, in particular, was very gracious to my family constantly. Um, I mean, I'd get Christmas gifts from the Reagans. Who gets that? And right. and my wife, I said, you know, we, we got to get uh, one of my supervisory responsibilities on my second tour at the White House was Mrs. Reagan's detail. And when she went to anything controversial, I always traveled with her. So it came Christmas time. They told my wife, you got to get a present for Mrs. Reagan. She goes, what do I get? What do I get a, <laughs> present, a right. present for the first lady of the United right. States? So... But we did. And uh, of course, Mrs. Ray was, she was very like a high, she, she was like a very elegant lady that always dressed to the nines, you know, just. Right? Yeah. Oh, sure did. Sure did. Yeah. So the relationship changed uh, and it was um, uh, a wonderful relationship, but it was also a very professional relationship, too, because God forbid some, you know, uh, we still have to protect the president and had yeah. to put aside, you know, and all the personal feelings and maintain a professionalism too. So it, it was probably just slightly complicated to that extent, but, um, uh, but, you know, the president, the first lady and all of their children and so forth couldn't have been more gracious forever. Eventually you decided uh, to leave the secret service and you went into uh, policing in, in Illinois back here. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, uh, I retired 
and actually went to work for a security company as a vice president called Security Link. It was a uh, an alarm company, and it was owned by a former member of the Secret Service, a fellow by the name of Jim Covert. And he'd been asking me for a couple of years, and I'd always turned him down. Finally, uh, you know, I'd been agent in charge in the Chicago field office for about three years, and my now, most of my colleagues were running the Secret Service. They were the directors and assistant directors and deputy directors. And they'd been holding out, Tim, we'd like to get you back in Washington again, which would have been our fifth transfer. And yeah. uh, not that they would have done it. They would not have forced right. me to do it. Right. But I said, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty young. There's time for another career. I enjoyed everything in the Secret Service. So I did this thing with the security company for only about eight months. In the meantime, the chief of police job came open in Orland Park. We had a mayor, Dan McLaughlin, at that time, an outstanding mayor. I have to say that because he hired me, of course. But uh, yeah, they've had great mayors uh, out there. Yeah, and Keith is a mayor. Yeah, yeah he's doing he's a good a job. Yeah. So uh, when the job came open, I had a number of chiefs of police call me that were friends of mine, you know, from South Suburban chiefs, Illinois chiefs, and said, "We hear you're applying for it." And I said, "I didn't even know it was open." And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I was making at that time with this security company in 19, what year was that, 1993 or four, a huge salary. And the, the job as chief of police was about half of that. So in any case, I all the, thought about it, talked with my wife uh, and decided to apply for it. You know, and it went through the whole process. There was probably 40 or 50 applicants as, as, as used to be the case. And uh, came uh, one of the final five, interviewed by the board of trustees, and was ultimately selected and started in May of '94, and went on as chief for over almost 26 and a half years, which is slightly unusual, I know. Right, uh, it's but, a long run. It, well, we had a great mayor and great board of trustees yeah. that, that and village managers that allowed the chief to do the policing, and yeah. uh, it, was, it was a great marriage. So, and you at one time dabbled in politics. You had a run for the Secretary of State of Illinois. Yeah. And um, you ran as a Democrat back then. Yeah. I I was elected as a Democrat. We were all Democrats, I think, if we were Irish Catholic and we we had any lineage to Chicago. Yeah. um, That was our party. And um, Reagan kind of changed that a little bit. But can you tell us about your political run for a minute and just how your faith um, guided you through that? Well, I was somewhat reluctant to do it, but thought about it, ran for secretary of state in the primary against Jesse White, probably one of the most popular Illinois politicians. Yeah, he wound up being the highest vote getter forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to, t- to tell you the truth, I thought it, it was uh, my background fit it, the job. Secretary of state has a police department. Certainly right. they're a regulatory agency, which in policing is a regulatory agency. So I thought I could make a contribution uh, at that point. And um, didn't quite work out the way I thought it was going to work out, put a lot of work into it. Uh, I was extremely careful not to use one hour of vacation. You know, if, if I was yeah, doing anything yeah. for it, that I would take my hour of vacation time. So right. that I, and, um, so it, it was a good experience. Um, it, it was difficult, you know, you get to the abortion issue and so forth, which is very, you know, which is one of the biggest issues now and forever. Right. So, um, th- that didn't. At that point, I mean, you've always been pro-life, and, and at that point, the Democratic Party wasn't. You know, there was there were most of the Chicago Democrats were, were marginally pro-life, at least. Yeah, 
it, it was, was just a different it was a different time yeah it was certainly a different time uh but you know i related to you know i came from a working family uh my father would have benefited if they had unions in the police department at that time because they were certainly overworked and underpaid um and you know i'd been a laborer at one time or another a teamster at one time or another so you know we grew up in that type of environment so that's what attracted me uh, largely uh to, to run as a democrat things have changed a bit <laughs> things have changed a bit but uh, uh in the end um while you, you don't do anything with the intent to, to lose um you know i you know remained as chief of police and had an absolutely uh, wonderful career as a chief of police uh you know it ended up after the george floyd incident about a year after that i retired uh and things have changed significantly since then yeah a lot of people have tried to get you to run again i, I mean i know the republicans as well have tried to yeah. get you to run and uh that one run was enough to say that i'm not really gonna well i'll never say never but yeah. uh, one way or the other but uh, um i haven't seen uh, the nature of politics has changed an awful lot yeah. uh you, you know it's it's far more bitter than it was jesse right. white would come to orland park every year the um the teamsters Ryan, my, my old boss the attorney general's favorite democrat yeah. by far yeah and jesse would come to to orland park i golf in it uh it was a massive golf outing i'd always kid him i said i said jesse you're now in my territory here yeah, anything can yeah. happen but he was a perfect right. gentleman uh, right. all the time and uh, we always kidded about it so ronald reagan and that that date march 30th uh 1981 as a result of that, Jim Brady had been shot and he became one of the um, loudest uh, spokespeople, advocates for gun reform. The Brady Bill eventually, with, which dealt with background checks, was passed and uh, he continued to advocate on behalf of that. How does Tim McCarthy feel about where we're at with guns right now in America? And, you know, there's a big debate now. Do, do people need AR-15s? And um, I'm interested from like your Catholic lens, because some of these issues, they don't really, you know, the Catholic Church, there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, leeway either way, the, you know, providential decision making where, where you know, a Catholic could essentially find up on it, find themselves on either uh, side of that issue. Well, it, it's, it's a very complicated issue. And I've seen plenty of, of gun violence up close. Um, I think we have several steps to take. Uh, if we could eliminate all guns tomorrow, that would be ideal. But we know that's never going to happen. It's not realistic. We can't stop millions of people coming across the border with hundreds of millions of fentanyl pills. We can't seem to stop that. Tell me how we're, we're not going to how we're going to stop the guns that will ultimately come across the border. Right. We have more but, guns than we do have people. But the first commitment we have to make is to is to prosecute gun crimes. We have to prosecute gun crimes. Now, in Orland Park, the last year I was chief, we had uh, 30 or 40 gun cases. Now it's over 100. And yes, we do get charges, but ultimately they get reduced. And these are the these are ag UUWs, you know, class four felonies of people who are, who are who are felons in possession of firearms, and they're not being efficiently prosecuted at all. So I think we have to make a commitment to that to start with. Uh, I question the need for for assault rifles, but I don't see us taking them away from people either. 
But I think we have to do the fundamentals first. We have to prosecute criminals and hold them accountable. When you see that happen, I think you will see gun violence being reduced. We also have to look at what we put on television. You can't tell me that the massive amount of gun violence that is portrayed on television every day in our movies constantly doesn't have something to do with it. We also have to do a little work on mental health. In Orland Park, I started our our CIT program, our crisis intervention uh, training, uh, and the the problems with mental health are monumental, and they shouldn't be police problems. You know, a lot of the, I watch all the shows with guns because, you know, I mean, that's, you know, I I kind of had that law enforcement, like the bad guys, (laughs) good guys. But, um, you know, sometimes the way it it can be portrayed, I I suppose, right? And then the younger audiences, that's the more problematic. Yeah, I mean, they're influenced by the gaming and so forth that they do, uh, you know, by television. And I believe there's, there's something to that. With regards to the Second Amendment, you know, being in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, one of the things, and I'm the same as you, I mean, we're city kids, uh, we didn't have guns growing up, you know, I mean, there's no, we, we didn't, weren't like out hunting or anything like that, you know, it's this big love affair with guns is not really <laughs> you or me, but um, the people that are going after the guns are the same people that are going after other liberties, and that's, to me, that's what, what I worry about a little bit, is that First Amendment and Second Amendment and Fourth and Fifth Amendment, they're all kind of tied together. Do you see that as a problem? Well, sure. But show me initially how that we are taking the first step to those that commit crimes with guns, that we are uh, holding them accountable because we're not. We time it again. All the crimes are being committed by recidivists, parolees, people on probation, people who have been convicted three, four or five times. Guns are going to get through our borders. Guns are going to keep coming back into this country. But I would I would. I would not rule out that if we take that first step and actually do that and get that, uh, that you could convince me to get rid of assault rifles. You probably right. could, but right now right. we are not doing that. Uh, we're right. simply not doing that. Uh, but let's you know, be realistic. Really... We're never going to get rid of guns one way or the other. You're listening to 88.5 FM, 750 AM, WNDZ. I'm Mark Curran. The show is cross-examination. Our guest is a wonderful longtime police chief. Tim McCarthy, former Secret Service, former Chief of Orland Park Police. Tim, so you're like uh, kind of like the old school, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood type guy, you know, very masculine. And um, you grew up, uh, you know, playing football and all that. Now we're living in a world where it's, you know, um, masculinity is like a, a negative. And um, there seems to be this push that there's really no difference between men and women and what have you. Do you think that's a problematic as with regards to uh, today's world? And what does your Catholic faith have to say about that? Well, uh, I believe the Catholic faith recognizes a man and a woman. And uh, I haven't heard the Cardinal, what his position on it or the Pope, uh, transgender still have to be treated properly uh, uh, and fairly. But I don't want to see this in the schools uh you know if someone decides to change their gender you know they can do it on the other hand i don't want to see it in the schools that's something between the parents and and that person if they decide to do something like that yeah uh which you know is often cases irreversible but i don't want to see it it's the public schools 
and they do a great job. Don't get me wrong. I have nothing against public schools, but I don't want that type of thing in my public school with my kids right. or with my grandkids. That's between the parents and their child and right. not the government. They do a great job out in Orland. They don't do such a good job in Chicago. Uh, uh, Chicago's a different animal, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different no, animal. Absolutely, absolutely, brother. So, uh, Tim, one of the things that uh, has been under attack and, we're, you know, they're constantly looking for ways to reinvent. And my um, theory is that unless you, you know, you have a, a, a moral compass, you're going to be a problem in, in law enforcement. And so we don't need all this like retraining and what have you. There's been some more training than ever. And when these police officers are out of line, Generally, it's, they did something that morally was unacceptable. It's not that they were trained that way. And I, I put that forward to you. What can be? What should we be doing in law enforcement as we move into the future? And also uh, the fact that I have to acknowledge, having been a prosecutor all these years and having been a sheriff, that there is uh, a tendency to uh, not rat on your brother in law enforcement. And I think that's like you mentioned George Floyd earlier, you know, four guys standing around and, you know, somebody should have said something. Laquan McDonald, I mean, you know, the, the reports shouldn't have all read the same. That's not what happened, you know? So yeah. what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I condemned um, the George Floyd thing with my department. Uh, in our department, we had you know, African-Americans and uh, excellent police officers. And I was thrilled that I got an email back from one of our officers, chief of proudest moment of, of my time in the Orland Park Police Department was when you put out that email and had um, meetings condemning what happened there. And it was easy to condemn. So, but I think it, it, we have to treat people, you know, everything seems to be about race and about gender and so forth. You just have to treat everyone the same. That's all, right. everyone the same. And yes. what happened to George Floyd shouldn't have happened to anybody. But, yes. but one of the things I want to mention is what happened to George Floyd was wrong. We condemn it. Should never happen. But the Minnesota Minneapolis Police Department fired that officer. He was prosecuted. He went to jail. They did all the right things. Now, maybe right. public pressure had something to do with it. But I can tell you, 25 years ago, that probably wouldn't have happened. So right. Minneapolis police were, were dead wrong in what happened. Um, and we all know chokeholds. The chokeholds have been barred in Illinois a long time prior to this whether yes. it was with your arm or your knee or anything like that. So he was wrong. But Minneapolis police um, did the right thing. And that should have been celebrated a little bit, but maybe it was because of public pressure they did it. I don't know um, if that's the case or not. But training, you know, has you have to have good training. And the, justice is supposed to be blind, right. period. And right. it doesn't seem to be blind anymore that we have to consider um race and gender no we don't we have to treat everyone fairly the same and constitutionally um, and i think uh, uh yes police there is a code of silence to an extent i think it changed um it has changed yeah. and i think it's going to continue to change but right. everyone has to be treated the same race gender identity has nothing to do with it treat everyone the same so we're wrapping up right now. We're just about done. Uh, WSFI Catholic Radio, our wonderful guest, Tim McCarthy. We're so grateful for him and, and so grateful for his life of service. Tim, uh, let me just maybe finish with this. Where do we go from here? What, if you see if there's young Catholic men or women out there that are considering what should they do with the rest of their lives, 
Would you tell them to get into law enforcement? And if so, why? And in what advice from your Catholic upbringing would you give to them to help them survive? Well, I would. Uh, I did almost 50 years, and I would encourage them to get into law enforcement. The pendulum swings back and forth. But uh, as a Catholic, your faith teaches you to treat everyone the same. Uh, it teaches that just maintain that faith, maintain that uh, um, that attitude that everyone gets treated the same. Uh, again, policemen are are, uh, are being asked, quite frankly, to do things that really don't belong in their arena. And one of the things that we forget is our military does a superb job. They deploy for a year, sometimes longer. They come back, they, they retrain, they get time away from it. Our police do not get any time away from it. And we're gonna have to look at the fact that somewhere down the road, I mean, we're, we're asked, you know, whether it's mental health, whether it's um, uh, using Narcan, the things we're being the domestics that God himself cannot solve are being asked to do things that, that, um, that we weren't asked to do a number of years ago. And we'll continue to do them. And we have to emphasize the positive. Every day police start doing absolutely superb things in the city of Chicago, in our suburbs, in our 100%. counties. And yes, we make mistakes. We need to be held accountable for them. We're being held, but we don't need to be persecuted for them either. I think there's been some cases where there's been a little bit, um, the police don't get the benefit of the doubt anymore in situations where exactly. you're making a, 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 a decision and not a split second in a mini second. Yeah, we have, um, a, very, we have a legislature in Illinois that's very hostile towards law enforcement. Right there's no question about that. They're, they're wrongheaded on this. And yeah. I hope they, uh, and the, the result is more victims and more victims. Amen. So we're, we're Wrap it up. We're, we're done. We want to really thank uh, Tim McCarthy, just a wonderful, wonderful leader. It was a terrific police chief, one of the best known. You didn't do bad yourself, Mark. Thank you, brother. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And so uh, usually I, I remember to say a, a prayer before we start, but uh, we'll do like the French and say grace afterwards. In the name of the Father and Son, always spirit of men. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of Mary God, Mother God. God. sinners, yeah. now at the hour of death. Amen. We'll call upon the intercession of St. Michael. Protect our women and uh, men in blue out there. We, we ask that you continue to protect uh, Tim McCarthy, his family, and, and the Holy Spirit to guide him uh, as he continues to be used by the Lord to do so much great work. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Mark. God bless you. You too, brother. Bye. Bye.